law wills it so. As Mama said this, I'd be fantasizing about growing up in Boston with cool people, a giant three-foot-long latchkey hanging around my neck. Only four years old, I'd come home from daycare and pour myself a bowl of cereal. It could have been like that Bill Withers song, just the two of us, poor and Arab. People would have assumed that Mama, who has kinky black hair, brown skin, dark green eyes, and wears a lot of gold, was a Latina, and that I, a cracker-looking girl, was her daughter from a union with a gringo, and that would have been that. But Mama's an Egyptian, her mother was a Greek, my father is a Palestinian, and my parents didn't stay in America on account of my yaya, my Greek grandma and the reason that I sort of look like a cracker, dying of a brain tumor at the old age of 56. They didn't stay in Boston. They returned on the Egypt airplane with me and, Mama, me and Baba's lap. Mama curled up inside herself, and yaya's ghost jammed in between them. They returned cheerless in 70s polyester pants and straightened hair to bury my yaya at the Greek cooperative cemetery in Alexandria. In Egypt, I played with a set of Russian dolls my dead yaya once gave my mama. I pretended to be the smallest Russian doll, the empty-bellied one that goes in her mama, the mama that gets cradled in her mama, and so on. I knew that the biggest doll, the biggest mama on the outside, was Greek, but that I wasn't Greek. I noticed that all the dolls were split in half except me, even though I was split in half. I was Egyptian and Palestinian. I was Greek and American. My little blue passport, the one that looked nothing like Mama's medium green one or Baba's big brown one, said I was American. I didn't have to stand in a different line at airports yet, but soon I would. And Mama would stand in a different line, and Baba would stand in yet another line. It would make me feel all alone and different. It would make me believe that the world wanted to split up my family, so I'd pull to them even more. After burying my grandma, we left Egypt and went to Kuwait, where Baba's new job awaited him. Kuwait in the 70s was a haven for Arab intellectuals and for people who wanted to live in apartments that did not resemble shelters. Baba said that moving was part of being Palestinian. Our people carry the homeland in their souls, he would tell me at night as he tucked me in. This was my bedtime story when I was three, four. You can go wherever you want, but you'll always have it in your heart. I think to myself, that's such a heavy thing to carry. I'd visited this homeland once, noticed that there was a lot of grass, several rocks and mountains, and thousands of olive trees and donkeys. It helped me to know this when I was a little girl, forced me to have compassion for Baba, who, obviously, had an extremely heavy soul to drag around such inside such a skinny body. Thank you, Rhonda. That was actually that's one of my favorite lines. Um, that moment where um, the Nadali, am I saying her yeah, name correctly? Nadali. Nadali. Yeah. She says, um, "That must be a pretty heavy thing to carry around." Mm-hmm. C- referring to carrying around the homeland mm-hmm. in your soul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a wonderful moment. Thank you. Um, so when you were writing this, there's obviously this really um, funny and and wise for beyond her years voice that's that's guiding us from the very beginning because you didn't you didn't start us off right at chapter one no. um, but but Nadali is literally introduced with her her birth mm-hmm. and the and Baba thinks her father Baba thinks mm-hmm. um, that she'll be a boy at first and, he hopes. and so mm-hmm. the surprise and she's not and then um, but uh, with this story where you, um, you've got this story to tell about a, a young girl mm-hmm. and coming of age and growing up. Um, mm-hmm. but then you also have this, uh, these uh, historical political aspects to the book, um, which we heard parts of in what you chose to read us Rhonda. So what was it like working with that, um, 
as well as the the story, the narrative itself? Well, I think, um, I mean, the main reason I think I wanted to write this book was because when I was, you know, when I was an undergrad and when I was younger, I would look, you know, I would go to all these libraries and I would try, try to interlibrary loan all these books um, that I hoped would sort of mirror my experience, right? And so there was a lot of searching going on, and that's one of the reasons I ended up really falling in love with Arabic literature, African-American literature, and reading stories by Latinas and, you know, other uh, hyphenated Americans. And <clears throat> But I couldn't obviously find a story that was you know, precisely my story. Like I was thinking, why hasn't anyone written about someone who's part Palestinian, part Egyptian, part Greek, who who grew up in Kuwait, who moved here after the first Gulf War? Why isn't anyone writing about this? <laughs> someone should be. And so, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think, I mean, that's why I wrote it is because I think I had this realization, obviously, that no one was going to do that and that I had to do it. And so, and you know, I've always loved writing and I studied as an undergrad. So it's not like I had this moment, like I should write a book. Um, but that's when I found out that that should be my, my subject. Um, and then the political stuff, I mean, so you found your subject before you had this, this kind of that grand idea about writing a novel. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I think, I think the political stuff is sort of, it's almost incidental. It's just, it's just sort of the way I grew up and the way the people around me did. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, it's just personal. So it comes out as political, but it's really just personal history that, you know, obviously is connected to the larger political. Right. Well, world. if it's your, if it's like the characters, if it comes in so naturally as the character's bedtime story mm -hmm. from when there are three saying right. that it's, it's your, you're to move. That's mm -hmm. just part of who you are as a, as a human being mm -hmm. is to keep moving. Mm -hmm. Then that seems like it would be naturally entering the story. Whereas, and that's the story of Palestinians. Right. right. So, yeah. yeah. And I think it's definitely Nadali's story because this is a character that is constantly moving. Um, and she moves only to, you know, figure out that she has to move again. So every time she moves, you know, and tries to settle down, it's only natural that she'd have to sort of pull roots out and start over. Um, and I think that ends up being who she is. You know, she's someone who um, is at home with herself because that's really the only the self becomes the home and that's why it seemed like that would be a coming of age story was you know the perfect sort of um way to have structure that, the realization yeah. of that mm -hmm. yeah that is a nice moment i feel like there is a time when nadali starts to realize that maybe quarter way through the book but she's realizing it about maybe her her parents or not yet right. herself right. yet early on in the book um, when did you first hear um, her voice? Because her voice is very has a yeah. very clear uh, like rhythm and tone to it. Um, when what were some of the pieces when she actually was speaking? Started speaking to you? Okay. Well, I'll just give you like a little bit of background about how I wrote this book. Um, Great. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a good question. <laughs> uh, so I had. Uh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> It's just between you, me, and Alex, uh, the engineer. <laughs> I had started an MFA program, and a couple of weeks in, this is in Texas, I realized that that wasn't going to work out for me. Um, I was 22, and I had a baby, and the, all the classes were at night. It was a nightmare. So I quit. And um, uh, Was this at, at, Tex is at Austin? Texas State, actually. Oh, Texas, Texas State. State? Okay. Yes. And um, 
someone very, very generous uh, helped me out and, you know, told me, well, you need to, well, okay, I'll just tell the story. Um, Leslie Silko was teaching there and um, she had read some of the pieces I'd written and she said, I think there's a novel here and I think you really need to take time off and really focus on this novel. So uh, she told me, you know, I can help you out. I can financially help you as long as you, you know, are going to really work on this book. And I said, yes, of course. And so she did. And I moved in while well, I was living in an <clears throat> apartment at the time. And um, for a couple of months, I started writing. And it was still fragmented, not really. I mean, the voice wasn't, it was third person. And when it was first person, it was too much like me. Or, you know, it was too sad. And then I moved into a trailer um, in Kyle, which was at the time a very small town, 5,000 people. And I uh, was sitting around in this brass bed that had, like, it was broken in the middle, but that was my bed. And I remember I was sitting in it and thinking, and her voice came to me right away. And it was that first line. I don't uh, know how I came to know the story, and I don't remember, I don't know how I can possibly still remember the story, um, et cetera. And so I got up and went to this computer, which I hadn't even paid for yet. <laughs> it was this, this weird gateway computer. And I sat down <laughs> in this tiny, tiny room where you could literally touch both sides of the room if you stretch your arms out. Um, and I wrote what basically has ended up being like the first, you know, eight or nine pages of, of, of the book. I mean, I revise it, obviously, but so her voice came to me like that, just in a rush, very, very, she was very profane and sassy and just no, didn't take, you know, no, wasn't messing around. And so I thought, well, maybe this is it, maybe. And then that turned out to be it. After months of trying with other voices, it was actually Nadali's voice that needed to tell this story. So, And which became the anchor because it is mm -hmm. the beginning of the mm -hmm. book there. Um, and so why... Since it was so strong, Rhonda, why do you think that you, you tried to keep, what were, why did you think some of these other voices should have, did you think other voices, um, like Baba's voice or Mama's voice or Gamal, like somebody else would have equal time to get a different perspective? Why, why were you still willing to consider other voices if this was so strong? Um, well, I haven't found, I hadn't found this one yet. I think that's what it was. Um, so, but I think, I think I, was really worried about writing a novel in the first person, especially a novel that was so close to my historical and cultural background because of the, a lot of the questions that I am already getting on my book tour. Someone asked me, well, th but that's not your name. I remember <laughs> I was in, I think it was in Boston a couple of, like last week, someone said, you know, I read the beginning and they said, but that's not your name. <laughs> that's great. And I said, it's fiction. And I'm sure I looked like really monstrous and angry when I said it, but... <laughs> I said, well, it's fiction. And so I think that's well, one just of the like reasons. me saying, oh, well, Boston, you were born in Boston. Right. You're but like, that's okay. No, it's that's Chicago. Okay. Your tea. It's okay. <laughs> You're kind. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Rhonda Gerard, A Map of Home.
Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and if you're just joining us, just tuning in or clicking on that stream, um, Rhonda Jar is here in the studio with her debut novel, A Map of Home. And whenever I announce um, an author's book, I'm always looking at the book very, very excitedly. This is a great book. And you can pick one up at Shaman Drum or Borders. Um, you're going to be reading at Shaman Drum, right? Yeah, Rhonda? Monday uh, the 15th at 7 o'clock, I'm going to be reading. So please come out. So this coming Monday, mm -hmm. September 15th, 7 p.m. Um, so nice. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. And what, because you've probably been to many readings there by this point, right, Ron? Yeah. So. <laughs> and I'm kind of worried because at a lot of the, those readings, I'm sort of staring off <laughs> and zoning out. And so, well, maybe it so, was the temperature. Maybe it was right, there. right, right. So, so yeah, I, I'm going to be able to tell if you guys aren't paying attention to me. No, right. You'll know what to look for. That's yeah. for sure, right? Yeah. No, this will be. This is a captivating story. So I'm sure you'll have everyone's attention. And um, so, yeah, let's go back to what we were talking about right before the break, mm -hmm. Rhonda. Where you dealing with because you've been let's say you've been to New York City and you've been mm -hmm. to the Harvard bookstore already mm -hmm. so you've had were there other points on the in Atlanta as well I went to the Decatur book festival in Atlanta yeah so and have you been doing other radio interviews or talking with people I oh I saw that you got um a review in People magazine I did four stars yes yeah <laughs> actually it's on I have to brag it's on the same page as um any as the the review for Annie Prue's new book and I got I got more stars really so. that's great <laughs> yeah well that was a really surreal moment I was um I was in Harvard Square well I got I was talking to my publicist and she told me about it and I kind of thought great but I didn't believe it until I saw it so I went to the Harvard bookstore or the Harvard Square and was at a newsstand and asked this really cute guy who was working behind the counter to go try to find me People Magazine, <laughs> telling him the whole time that I didn't like People Magazine that much. Right, exactly. You're in Harvard, and you're reading exactly. your People Magazine. It was really crazy. <laughs> he found it for me, and I looked at the review, and it just felt so amazing. And so I just, yeah, I just I have to say it feels vindicating, because this book sort of sat around for two and a half years um, at the publisher, because they had a really long list or something. And... Um, and it's wow that's a long time yeah. to wait after it was accepted mm -hmm. Rhonda you're mm -hmm. saying at yeah. other press then it, you, you wait mm -hmm. and before then I'd waited for two and a half years for even anyone to bring it up. so there was really I really wasn't sh I think I'd given up um, three a little over three years ago and so on this particular novel well on it coming out on, on it coming writing. out no 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 um, yeah. no <laughs> just just on this book coming out this particular book and then so now that it has and now that it's getting this really great attention it's somewhat surreal um but it feels really good yeah and and how interesting too that you had this moment where you had that vindication in a way with a stranger in right a square, well this is what he right? said he said um well what's your book about I can't do a Boston accent. I wish I could. And I said, oh, it's a coming-of-age novel set in the Middle East and Texas. I've, <laughs> I've memorized it. A nice soundbite. Yeah, exactly. And then he said, you know, he paused, and then he said, well, I can relate to that, being a guy who grew up in New England. Well, he, I think he was joking. And then I sort of just gave him these puppy dog eyes, and he said, but I came of age. <laughs> right. So he can connect to it, too. Yeah, I'm thinking that hopefully that's the connective strand. That's what's going to connect readers to it, is that even though it is a very, very specific story, I'm hoping it's, you know, because it's so specific, it'll be universal, and, you know, people will still find ways to really, I mean, people are relating to it, so. Oh. 
definitely. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't had the struggle with their parents, yeah. right? <laughs> well, lo- whoever they are, I hate that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're hated by many, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but so, so when you've been on this this tour and talking with people, and have have, there, have you been on panels for the book yet, Rhonda? Because I, I I know I've seen you at AWP on other you know on another yeah. panel. But um, I was on a panel at Indicator with Haji, who's hysterical. He's he wrote uh, some BET show called Somebodies. And um, so he'd written a memoir about growing up in the South and growing up in, with his crazy parents, too. So, But it was a memoir. So I think a couple of people were th- asking me, like... Blurring the lines. Yeah. Between. So how are you coping with that since since some of your, your autobiography, the places where you grew up... Uh, and move to mm-hmm. you know, are in are the story mm-hmm. that's being told. Oh, yeah. How are you coping with separate getting people to realize that it's you know it's not your s- story specifically. It's fiction. I think I've sort of given up on that. I think I can't. I obviously can't make readers think that it, there's a separation. I personally can't demarcate the separation very well. I can't. I mean, it would take hours and hours of me being like, well, see, in this story, the way that's really happened is, you know, um, my dad didn't kick my dad, my mom out in the car, out of the car in the desert. He actually did it in Austria when I was this age and it traumatized me. And this is how I want to write about it. And actually, my mom isn't like this and my dad isn't really. I mean, it's -hmm. really hard to really break it down for readers. specifically how it veers away from my own personal history. So I think I'm, you know, it's sort of like that Mary McCarthy, the memoirs of a Catholic girlhood where she spends a footnote that's essentially the size of the chapter preceding it saying, actually, this didn't happen this way. I just remember it this way. This is how it really happened. This is how it feels like it happened or a way to talk about it. That would, yeah. Right. So I feel... I feel like it's tough. I mean, one of the reader, one of my readers, who's someone I've been emailing with for a long time, came to um, the Decatur Book Festival and she said, "Why didn't you write a memoir?" And I said, "I mean, I just answered as honestly as I could. I love to lie. I love to make things up. I love to fib, and you know that's." one of the reasons. And that's also a trait given to <laughs> Nadali as well. At least we're introduced right. to the, the the aspect of white lies pretty early oh, yeah, on. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. And, the story and she telling. meets and her boyfriend, uh Fakhreddin is a big liar. Um <laughs> right. From the get go. From the get go. In detention. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, I've you know, I obviously yes, I had a boyfriend at that time and he's not Fakhreddin, but he did lie to me once this real life boyfriend. And so in the book, he's a huge liar. (laughs) So everything, I mean, I just think everything is exaggerated and everything is, you know, um, a a funhouse mirror version of real life. So because it's that blend, isn't it? Of fiction, like write what you know, we've been given that as a directive. And then it's, um, imagination, uh, let your, your mind go Mm -hmm. where it will. And so the blend Mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because the the parents, Baba and Mama, I, I did wonder if they had similar, because it was such a, a, it seemed like to me an important part of the the book where they were, where Nadali says at one point, they're in failed artists and why is that, you know, is that why they're pushing me towards a life that doesn't include that type of disappointment? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so I did wonder at that point, I wonder how... Or if that had another manifestation in your life, some other guard against taking this path yourself. Well, I mean, ironic. 
my parents are, are really, really supportive of my writing. I mean, they've always, ever since I was little. Which you say in the acknowledgments. Yeah, have said, you know, you're a writer. I mean, they just, they never said you're going to be a writer or you would make a good writer. They just said, you're a writer. And I actually That's have. That's an amazing difference, isn't it? They were great. Yeah. yeah. And I have this passport that I made when I was <laughs> a little younger than my son's age. And it, it really, I Angelo love, now? Like younger than. A little younger. Yeah. He's yeah. 11 and a half. So I was probably 10 or so when I made this passport. And it really reflects like all my, all my cultural confusion and all my identity crises that I was going through at that, at that time. Um, so it's like an American passport, but the nationality says Jordanian because there's no such thing as Palestinian. Um, and then I think I have my eye color weird. Like I think I say chestnut. It's just, but anyway, under occupation, it says author. So even as a 10 year old, I think I was, this was something that I really wanted to do. Whereas Nadali, you know, her parents don't want her to suffer and they don't want her to um, go through the disappointments that they went through. You know, Baba's a poet who obviously couldn't make it, especially, I mean, you, you can't really make it anywhere, but definitely not in the Arab world, being a poet. And um, so he's an architect in the book. Right, right. And I'm, when I say make it, I mean, like, maybe support three kids by um, or two kids, you know, by reciting poetry. Right, there's a place in the halls. culture for it, but it's right, not definitely a huge funded. Place. And then the mother is a pianist who does it sort of in secret. She plays music, but she doesn't ever play for anyone. So they're both <clears throat> trying to, you know, they, they couldn't find a way to really do what they love. Um, so they don't want Nadali to go through the same thing. Mm-hmm. So... So in the way that, because there's, there's terrible moments with both of them in some ways in the book, but then there's this pathos and, and deep tenderness mm-hmm. that you can see. So in a way that's a, a nice truth about parenthood. Um, <laughs> as I try to sound like some child psychiatrist now or something, don't be confused if you're just tuning in. It is living writers. It's not child psychiatry hour. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, today we're talking um, about Rhonda Gerard's first novel, A Map of Home, uh, put out by Other Press. Um, you can pick it up. It's new. It's hot off the press. And Rhonda will be reading at Shaman Drum this coming Monday at 7 p.m. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back. (laughs) You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor.
listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, um, and we're at the great station of WCBN-FM, Ann Arbor. Um, what a great place. The best. <laughs> I've been listening to the station. I know this is probably in really poor taste, but often when I've been driving around recently, and I'm just so proud of it. <laughs> you should be. You ought to be. <laughs> nice. This, but it is in bad taste. Let me just red flag this moment. <laughs> Maybe there's some way we could edit this out later, Alex. <laughs> and thanks to, while I'm thinking of it, thanks to Alex Bellhodge for um, coming in this morning and engineering us. Thank you, Alex Hensel. Alex. Um, if we were wearing hats, we'd be taking them off. Right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay, so back to back to this great book, A Map of Home. Um, Rhonda Gerard is here in the studio. Um, it's so exciting to have you as the first um, uh, live interview of the the term. Thanks I'm excited for to be here, kicking us off yeah. here and. Um, Okay. I want to. Can I do a shout out? Please. Yeah. Yeah. I think Alex, who do you want? I want to do a shout out to all the peeps I, you know, I was in my MFA program with. So all my peeps, if they're listening, um, and all the people I studied with, all the fabulous mentors and teachers. But let's talk about that. Who have been some of your influences that you would say for, for your for the writing. I think um, I think definitely I went to Sarah Lawrence, so you know there are teachers there that were so wonderful. Um, one of them is called Mary. Her name is Mary Morris, and she writes nonfiction and fiction. And she was very, she was always very supportive and told me, you know, you really need to write this novel. Um, this was back when I was nineteen, and I tried to write a novel and it didn't quite work. Yeah, well, and you started Sarah Lawrence. You, you mentioned when you were sixteen, Rhonda, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, what an impressionable age too yeah, to be working was, with people. That, yeah, that it young. was it was really great, um, and also to be surrounded by like beautiful queer women too that was great um was it was it a high point (laughs) oh yeah yeah um so yeah uh oh other influences maybe because you were you were saying for your writing i think i mean i'm i think i'm influenced you know by or or it could even be musicians or or things for your work what do you listen to yeah things that you feel make a i think i mean i think that you know Growing up in a household where classical music was a big deal, my mom was a pianist in real life too, um, and you know, coming to the U.S. and falling in love with hip hop, um, I think hip hop, you know, really influences this book too. And there was actually a moment, <laughs> there was a moment when um, there was this sort of tragic. It's not that tragic for me. It was um, a year, maybe a year, a little over a year ago. Uh, the person who actually owns Other Press, the publisher. Um, wanted to talk on the phone with me and ma- make some edits. And at that point, I'd really just gotten really cranky. I'd made like thousands and thousands of edits. Yeah. And one of them was, uh, she wasn't sure why there was a rap song in one of the chapters <laughs> towards the end. And so I rapped to her. I actually was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to need to break this down for you. Um, so, yeah, I rapped to her and she was like, okay, we keep it. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Can you remember what rap, what, what, oh. what was, can you do, can you give no. us a demo? No. Come on, come on, <laughs> twist your arm. <laughs> All right. I'll do like a little, I'll do, um, this is from the chapter called Dictations where Nadali's dad makes her write a bunch of what he calls compositions. 
compositions, which, you know, for college essays. And this is after their their failed attempts at his memoir, Evergreen. Oh, yeah. Evergreen. Terrible title. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank God he didn't write it. Um, Okay, so this is from the essay Composition Number 9, East is East and West is West, or Abdel Halim versus A Tribe Called Quest. So uh, in this short yet powerful essay, I will attempt to delineate the vast differences in culture yet freakish proximity and purpose of the two musical entities. I will do this by quoting the lyrics and placing the words sung by each entity vis-a-vis the other. Okay, so here's the tribe. Well, this has questionable language. Uh, I'll do it. I'll do oh, this. One. I'll do oh. this one. Okay. Uh, I'll <laughs> Thank just do you. One, one, one verse and then we'll, yeah. Let me hit it from the back, girl. I won't catch a hernia. Bust off on your couch. Now you got Seema's furniture. So that's the tribe. And then the Abdul Halim is, yes, love has tossed us and had its way with us. So the one who hooked us must help get us off. So that's from an actual Egyptian song from the 60s. So oh, <laughs> that's all the mm. rapping I'm going to do today. That's very lucky, nice. Lucky, guys. <laughs> Lucky that we got to hear some. Thank you. Because, yeah, I I also thought it was interesting that the last part of your acknowledgments was also I acknowledge the few historical inaccuracies in the novel. For example, I'm aware that Jay-Z's Big Pimpin did not appear until 1999. Right. I love that that was also the last, like, the last last thing in the book. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's true. It's it's Big Pimpin and did not come out until 99. And in the novel, I think it's happening in 92 or 93 that they over here Big Pimpin and Big Pimpin for those of you I wish we had it here actually we, uh, we should have play it oh probably not. yeah <laughs> well yeah we'll go out on another song but that <laughs> well, that would be our parallel universe well, the lovely thing about Big Pimpin is that it's <laughs> it's the first time really that someone uses a very very famous you know a classical Egyptian uh, pop song and melds it with a hip hop song. So Jay Z uses this riff from Khosara Yagara, which is this really awesome song by Abdel Halim Hafiz, and he plays it. You know, he loops it in the background while he talks about Pimpin, which is hysterical because Abdel Halim is talking very mournfully about his neighbor girl moving away, and he's so sad. The whole song is about how he's in love with her, and I can't believe he's she's leaving. Uh, her her so her, in the classical tradition oh, of yeah. love lost and oh, mooning yeah. over, and the her the, the new the new distance between them is going to cause him to cry many tears, and and <laughs> Jay Z is like, I'm a Pimpin every sense of the word. You know? Like he's, he's really not, you know, which is, yeah. That's so, actually a brilliant maneuver, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't credit Abdel Halim, so. Oh, um, so oh, that's not so good. No. Um, but, you know. That's uh, terrible, actually. <laughs> for shame, Jay-Z, if for you're shame, listening. Jay-Z. This is, yeah. Well. Like the wag of the finger, man. Yeah. Um, so, but I remember how great it was to listen to that song. First time I heard it, I was in Alexandria, Egypt, and there was this like really cute guy. God, that's the theme of today. <laughs> Hello, boyfriend Russell, I love you. <laughs> You're cute. Um, Another shout anyway, out. This guy there. was in a, a little cassette store because everything was on cassette. I think it's still on cassette. Um, and I bought this this big pimpin cassette. Anyway, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I love it when it's like this really cool melding of you know east and west, but it's done in a way that's that's perfect. It's it's they're they're perfectly uh, you know ma- well matched and they're it makes for a great song because you know. Um, the beat. It's all about the beat. It's all about this this underlying rhythm that doesn't 
I mean, I hope this isn't hokey, but that doesn't have, you know, uh, any sort of directional, you know, allegiance. It's all about the beat mm. and life and vitality. And that's one thing that I really wanted to put into this novel was like this idea that there is vitality and there's life um, in the culture that I grew up in and, and the culture that I live in now. So, yeah. Yeah, and so that and that's what's unifying the song as well. Even mm-hmm. though they're so, uh, they seem on the surface so juxtaposed with each other, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so opposed. Mm-hmm. But the beat is, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I think you've done it here in your oh, novel. Thanks. Thank yeah. you. Um, a little bit about your your website before we go, because uh, I think we're 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 marching on towards our our final moments together. <laughs> um, Tears. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only we could we could have um but your your website cuz i noticed that you started the blog um some years ago mm-hmm. but how would it be 5 years ago Rhonda? Or? i think it was 4 years ago and i think it was on valentines i was extremely bitter <laughs> a great time to start the blog yeah someone had i'd gone to san francisco and seen some performance somewhere and uh one of the performances was this woman marrying herself in a mirror it was I mean it sounds awful but it was kind of hysterical and then she tossed the bouquet and I looked away and of course it like smacked me right in the face and landed in my lap (laughs) and so the whole night that isn't an omen (laughs) the whole night people were saying are you the one who caught the bouquet (laughs) well it was so I ended up catching this bouquet that this woman who was marrying herself thrown (laughs) so it was very bitter it was Valentine's Day and I was like I'm gonna start a blog where I sort of try to elegantly complain about the you know the lack of certain things in my life so uh that was four years ago and then I it's great because you can go back and see you know all the different um like the journey that this book took too that's why I was asking yeah. you Rhonda because it was also it seems like would fall into that lull time with the book mm-hmm. where you still you hadn't heard anything back people had given you some feedback but not it was before other press took it mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so was this a way also of building community is there would you yeah because it sounds like you have correspondence you said with one of your long time readers does yeah. that mean from your blog along or yeah from my blog and from uh, stories that I've put up online too so yeah, it was really great. Before I before I came to Ann Arbor, before I came to the U, um, yeah, there was I I had maybe a couple of writer friends in in real life, and then all my writer friends were you know online. So there were people who had other blogs or people who'd written and published stories online. So that was really important for me because I didn't have that many people, you know, very many people to share stuff with. And I ended up sharing the first draft of my novel with you know some guy in Canada, a friend in Atlanta, people who I hadn't actually met in real life read the first draft of the book so wow um, but yeah that's so kind of amazing isn't it yeah because then you so. out you out you know the only way you know each other is from your little literally your words that you're writing back and yeah. forth to each other and then the the novel itself so there's nothing clouding it it's between them and the 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 fiction yeah, yeah. and there was this really healthy sense of I don't I feel I feel like there is a little bit of competition in that world but it just seems really healthy and and um maybe it's because you know people aren't I think it's the absence of the physical that that creates that really healthy um exchange and so that was really cool and um and to meet those people now I mean when I was at Blue Stockings in New York a couple of people 
maybe three or four people who I'd been emailing with or who have blogs came and I got to meet them and I've known them for like years and I've never actually seen them. So and this they was came the first in my person. Reading. Yeah, it was so nice to see them and to connect, you know, the you know, the face with the with the email address. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's probably going to be more and more common to say that, that phrase, right? Yeah. The face with the, not just the name, but the... the face with the Facebook profile. <laughs> right, or something. exactly. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel and today, Rhonda Gerard. We'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers today, Rhonda Jar, and I'm T. Hetzel, and uh, and it seems like we're in sort of a time warp here on the show this afternoon. Uh, Rhonda's got me all coming and going or something like that. <laughs> it's been such a great um, conversation. I really enjoyed oh, speaking with I you, Rhonda. I talking to you. It was so fun. Oh, well, thank you, and come come back. Come yeah, back. And, um, to you. Maybe we should have a roundtable living writers at some point, you know, and, and have many voices. Uh, yeah, you know, and arm wrestling, something like that. Yes. <laughs> now we're talking. Uh, um, and so could you tell us a little bit about the music we've been hearing? Because right when we right before we started the program, we we dashed in to That's have a look scary. on the shelves. And Reverend Andrew helped us pick some off the, <laughs> yeah. the world music section. I think um, the Natasha Atlas, the one that we started with. Um, the song I Put a Spell on You. It's basically the remake of the Screaming Jay Hawkins song where she she's singing in English, but she's using a sort of Arabic... Um, I don't see a daughter of a musician bad. Um, <laughs> there's something about the intonation. There's something about her voice that sounds Arabic, but she's actually speaking words in English. So and I love that. And then there's a scratching like record in the background with like Arabic percussion and Arabic 
instruments. So I love that. Again, the sort of meld, the nice little mix between East and West. Yes. And then the other album, actually, um, Alex Belhodge, the engineer, he was pleased to see it because it's a memory from his childhood. What Could you tell us a little bit about that album? And that's what we'll be going out on, too. The... Yeah. At Khaled, uh, he's, his name is Sheb Khaled. He's a North African Rai singer. And um, this is, like I think, one of the earlier albums. And it's just it, it just reminds me of, you know, when I first touched down on Texas, like that was the album that I was listening to. I was 20 and I wasn't sure if I was really going to, you know, um, end up writing or if I was going to go the academic route. And thankfully, I went the writing route. So, yes, yeah, almost definitely. <laughs> well, thank you, Rhonda. Thanks for having me, T. Um, again, so R- lovely. Oh, <laughs> Rhonda Gerard, A Map of Home. Rhonda will be reading Monday, September 15th, Shaman Drum, 7 p.m. Uh, again, her book, A Map of Home. Thanks to Alex. Thanks for listening. Ann Arbor, to all those streaming in Florida, Seattle, Chicago. Chicago. Um, until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
Sending out the signals, setting up outside. The one-two pitch, fastball, swing, and a miss. He struck him out. Jim Brower with his 200th career strikeout to end the top of the second inning. And Brower is now just the eighth pitcher in Michigan Wolverines baseball history to strike out 200 batters in his career. Howell doing everything he can here to keep the game alive for his team. Feldkamp still working off the stretch. Yeah, so since he came on, Jeff Gunkel flashes out the sign. Setting up outside. 2-2 pitch swing and a miss. He struck him out and the ball game is over. Derek Feldkamp strikes out Jacob Howell on a 2-2 curveball. The Buckeyes are retired in the ninth. They leave two on. The final score here at Ray Fisher Stadium, the first ever night game played at the pitch. Michigan 11 at Ohio State 3. Testing. Okay, for some reason, you guys are not going on the air. So, I need someone to come on in here and we'll talk through this mic and then uh, I'm going to work on this right here. But uh, one second. Uh, All right, there we go. Now we got it working. Okay, so... Let me start over here, John. Uh, this is the Daily Sports Report. It is Wednesday in Ann Arbor alongside Tyler Bruins and John Zacherdelli with Andrew's side behind the glass. I'm Jeremy Kreisberg, and to get you started with your Michigan news for the day, here's John Zacherdelli. All right, so after a long day of classes and figuring out everything, uh, I'm going to start off with some softball. The fall schedule is out. Uh, they have a couple of games this fall, I guess preseason. Uh, Traverse City Tournament, uh, September 20th and 21st. 
Um, on October 12th, they play a doubleheader against uh, Notre Dame. And then they cap it off with the October 26th alumni game. And so if you, uh, you want to see the new freshmen uh, coming on board and also uh, the returning pitchers of uh, Nicky Nemes and Jordan Taylor, uh, the record was 52-8 and eight last season uh, going to the Super Regionals. So hopefully they can start this fall season out and have a really good season in the summer. Of course, a tough loss to Virginia Tech last year. Yes. Stunned their hopes at a national title, but a very good team. And, of course, Angela Finley, middle of that lineup, she should help. And one more note uh, on the lines of baseball, softball. I don't know if you guys heard, but they announced a Big East Big Ten Challenge that's going to be taking place this year. Of course, they started last year with the collegiate baseball season starting on the same day for every team nationwide. Uh, well, this year, it'll be the Big East Big Ten Challenge starting it off from Michigan. And all those games, like last year, where Michigan started off in Florida, it was in Port St. Lucie last year against Villanova. And, of course, it was in the Met Spring Training Complex because Fred Wilpon, a Michigan alum who built this new great complex in Michigan, of course, built the... Uh, complex at Port St. Lucie as well. Well, this year it won't be at Port St. Lucie, but it will be in Florida uh, for Michigan against Big East teams. So that should be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's uh, the Big East teams are. Is it pretty much? It's all ten big or ten Big Ten teams, and there's only ten in baseball. So right. when I say all Big Ten, uh, that's what I meant. And then uh, there's eight Big <laughs> yes, East teams. Eight Big East teams. I have South so, Florida, Connecticut, Georgetown, St. John's. Seton Hall, West Virginia, Cincinnati, and Notre Dame. So uh, Villanova, who made the trip last year to play Michigan, of course, not included this year, although they are a Big East team. Uh, so that'll be interesting. And Michigan is getting pretty much the best of the Big East crop. They get St. John's, mm -hmm. who is uh, the best. They were top 25 ranked last year. And then they're going to get uh, who else? Cincinnati South and South Florida, Cincinnati I believe. Cincinnati's a good team. Yeah, and South Florida is a they're, – they're the home team pretty much is what it is. So it should be a very good uh, – very good uh, new system set up, and I, I at least you'll get to see some strong talent from a not really an upper echelon program, but in our mid program like the right. Big Ten. And it is spring break, by the way, so if you're interested in listening to those games, I will be down there broadcasting it. I don't know if anyone's going to join me. That'll well, be a good time. A lot of people come go down to Florida during spring. Right, break. spring break. So I yeah. will be down there broadcasting those games. So tune in on WCB, and you're getting your pitch in. What what is today? Uh, September something. It's February game, so you're ahead of the time. Finishing up with uh, Michigan sports, uh, just a rundown of uh, what's happening this uh, week. Uh, women's soccer plays Oakland tomorrow at 5. Uh, this Friday, uh, number 25, uh, women's volleyball plays Oakland. It will be live on WCBN Sports. And uh, live on the air on 88.3 FM as uh, the game will start at 7.30. It'll be me, Rushi, Christian, and Cheryl calling from the game. And uh, it should be a lot of fun. We'll do our game of the week here. You'll get 30 minutes beforehand, then you'll get to listen to Michigan-Oakland. Should be a pretty quick game as, uh, like you said, top 25 Michigan team going up against an Oakland team that just they, they, they can't match up talent-wise. So it should be a fun game just to listen to as it'll be our first broadcast of the year. And uh, it will be the start of a six-game homestand to finish off non-conference for Michigan. And then, uh, I guess, in between um, um, sets, uh, we'll get to t uh, talk about uh, the Michigan uh, football playing Notre Dame uh, Saturday at 3.30 start on NBC. And uh, I guess it's uh, I guess it look, something to look forward to. I guess we got the Stephen 3, Jimmy Clausen. I guess it won't be the biggest game on that day, but it's still uh, 
you're a Michigan fan or a Notre Dame fan, you'll be looking for it. I mean, it's still a rivalry game. Oh, yeah, it's a definite rivalry game. It should be a lot of fun. Once again, another thing we will be broadcasting, we'll be broadcasting that live from South Bend. You can hear it on WCBN.org. Uh, Click on the sports stream. You can also get to that by going to WCBNsports.com. And uh, it should, like I said, it should be a lot of fun. And um, I'm excited for I think Michigan should have should win it but you know I, there's a lot of people out there already with the glass half empty look on this season mm-hmm. saying that they're going to lose every game imaginable but well Notre Dame did not look good against San Diego State good job John Tyler National News all right considering we are in the middle of the week here in September there are only three weeks left in the Major League Baseball season so we're going to do a run through of the current standings we will start with the American League East where currently the Tampa Bay Rays have a one and a half game lead over the Boston Red Sox after they managed to earn a win late last night over Jonathan Papelbon. Tonight they play again at 7 o'clock to finish off the series. In the American League Central, the Chicago White Sox hold a slim one-game lead over the Minnesota Twins after the White Sox were swept in a doubleheader against the Toronto Blue Jays last night, and the Twins were able to take down the Kansas City Royals. Yeah, so a game and a half Twins picked up yesterday, Mm -hmm. and of course now they're home, but they'll be going away for a 10-game road trip pretty soon. So the Twins have to make up their ground now. Yesterday was a big, big day if you're a Minnesota Twins fan. And in the American League West, it really doesn't matter because already the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim have run away with it. They have a 16-and-a-half game lead over the Texas Rangers. We'll go to the National League East where the New York Mets hold a slim two-and-a-half game lead over the Philadelphia Phillies. We only call that slim because of 2007, of course. That's fresh in the minds of Mets fans. But yesterday was a very interesting day in the National League East. The Mets were up 2-0. Washington tied it 2-2. Mets up 5-2. Nationals went ahead 7-5. The Mets would tied at 7-7. Nationals went ahead 8-7. The Mets ended up winning the end 10-8. So they won 10-8. The Phillies, on the other hand, who were trailing Florida by the score of 9-1 at one point during Mm -hmm. that game, actually cut the Florida lead to 10-8. Had runners on at second and third, but couldn't come through. And that was in the sixth inning and then didn't score any more against the Florida bullpen so the Mets did pick up a game yesterday on the Phils. They played one more game than the Mets have so it's a three game lead in the loss column for the New York Mets. And importantly over this past month Carlos Delgado has been carrying them by himself. He had two home runs against the Nationals I think you'd night. be uh, hard pressed to find a better MVP candidate contingent on the Mets winning only because he's a 266 hitter but if you look at his numbers over the past 65 games he has more runs batted in than games played over the last uh, couple of months it really has been astonishing and just one score update for you Florida leading Philly right now mm-hmm. three to one they're playing in the bottom half of the fifth with Ricky Nolasco pitching uh, for the Marlins against Brett Myers who uh, shut out the Mets over eight innings his last time out so the Phillies uh, looking to stay afloat right now because they are in danger of falling to three games back entering play tonight with the Mets playing the Nationals for the second of a two-game series. In the National League Central, we have the Chicago Cubs holding a four-game lead over the Brewers after the Brewers beat the Cincinnati Reds 4-3 today. And to finish it off, the Los Angeles Dodgers. What a deal that Manny Ramirez trade has been for them. They now have a -a two-and-a-half-game lead in the National League West. He has been on fire ever since he joined that team. So they've won nine of their last ten. And, of course, they also traded for Casey Blake back at the trade deadline. He's worked out great. Uh, This Dodger team really seems to be ready to play October baseball. Remember, this is a team that trailed Arizona by four and a half games only ten days ago. They were set to go up against Heron and Webb. They beat both of them, cut it to two and a half, and ever since, they have been red hot. And remember, that is a team that lost eight games in a row a week and a half ago. It really has been an astonishing turnaround for the Dodgers. And... I think right now 
They may be the best team in the National League. The way they're playing right now, I think they're playing better than the Cubs. Uh, the Brewers have been slumping mightily. They came back from 3-1 down So have the Cubs. The Cubs have been 1-8 in their last nine games. Yeah, the Cubs they're have slumping not played too. good baseball. Of course, Zambrano is out right now, but mm-hmm. he should be back next week. So he'll give a uh, certainly a helping hand to the Cubs. But right now, the Mets and Phillies are just they're bad teams battling for a spot in the playoffs, it seems like to me. I mean, neither team has much of a bullpen to speak of. No. Mets have good starting pitching, but Wagner's their bats are... done for all of this year and next year. Yeah, Wagner's done till September of 2009, if then. And, of course, the Mets' bats are hot and cold. So uh, I think that NL East just is a couple of bad teams playing baseball right now. But the Dodgers are playing very good ball, and they're playing it at the right time. And as you said, Manny Ramirez has been a help to everybody in that clubhouse. Did you see last night the players wearing the Manny Ramirez dreads? Andre yep. Ethier talking about how everybody is now more relaxed as a result. Some people would have said that would be a bad thing for the Dodgers players to relax a little bit. When you, have a, when you have a young clubhouse like that, though, I think it really has had a very positive effect in Los Angeles Dodgers. I would agree. Um, to finish things up, I want to talk a little bit about a game that has already finished today, being the Oakland Athletics against the hometown Detroit Tigers. It's another rough one for the Tigers. They lost 5-2. Oakland opened up scoring the first five runs of the ball game. The Tigers were able to score two in the six. Galarraga takes the loss, four innings, five runs. Uh, for the win for the Oakland Athletics, Houston Street. Here's a question. Is Armando Galarraga a Rookie of the Year candidate right now? I would have to give him a shot. I mean... There are the list for the American League. I can't think of any right now who would stand way above him. I mean, who, are the, who are the candidates? Is my question. There aren't many. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you're going to have the injured uh, Longoria in there. Mm-hmm. Yep, a, that's very true. He had a good run, so I mean, it's going to hurt him that he was injured. But seriously, I Colorado's had a good season, but he's a what a sub four ERA right yeah, now, three point five eight. The, the the problem is you're you're rewarding a pitcher on a terrible team who I, I don't know I I'd love for him to get it but I seriously can't see him gain the consideration as usually the rookie of the year goes to someone who helped this team rather than someone who just kept this team from completely collapsing true so I mean I I think you have a lot of interesting debates right now in terms of the awards the like yeah. AL MVP it was looking like it would be Carlos, Carlos Quentin, Quentin. He's gone down. Maybe Justin Morneau wins it if the Twins win it. Of course, uh, of course, Josh Hamilton is going to be in consideration. you got to include Dustin Pedroia. He's been on fire since the end of August. He's, he's batting like 360. He's been well. batting cleanup. In some and then games. in the National League, you mean you have Aramis Ramirez, probably the best player on the Cubs, but he's batting 277. Uh, so I don't know if you want to give it to him. Ryan Braun's had a very good season, hitting 301, 27 bombs. He's been very good. Then, of course, you have a couple of guys in the Mets, Carlos Delgado, Jose Reyes, who have had good seasons. David Wright hasn't been bad as well. Albert Pujols has also been doing great. And Pujols, a 361 hitter, mm-hmm. uh, and he's up there in home runs and runs batted in as well. But, of course, he made the statement a few years ago that you shouldn't win an MVP if you aren't on a winning team when Ryan Correct. Howard won it. So he's not going to be on a winning team this year. They're four and a half back in the wild card, now five back. So that'll be very interesting as well. And then NL Cy Young, Tim Lincecum, Brandon Webb, and, of course, CC Sabathia, who pitched today. So a lot of interesting debates right now in terms of uh, MV- MLB awards. And to finish off our Nationals, let's talk a little bit about football sports, particularly injuries. Um, Big story, Marquez Colston, top wide receiver of the New Orleans Saints, out four to six weeks with a thumb injury. So that'll certainly hurt the Saints wide receivers. Maybe look for Devery Henderson to step up. That'll do it here for us. So for Tyler Bruins, John Zacherdelli, and Andrew Saad, I'm Jeremy Kreisberg saying so long and good night from Ann Arbor. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. The sports department would like to thank you for your continued support of University of Michigan Student Radio. Please don't be
Moss knocks over Campbellini, winds up and he scores! Just Campbellini lets a laser go from the near side circle, and the Wolverines take a one and nothing lead off the rocket, off the stick of Jeff Campbellini. From Pacifica Station KPFK in L.A., this is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 10, 2008. On today's newscast, we'll hear about relief efforts in Haiti, where storm after storm has wreaked havoc. Parents in India organize and demonstrate against soaring child trafficking. And we'll hear how residents in the Southwest are talking about safe and alternative energy. I'm Aura Bogado. Stay tuned for that and more after this news. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. The Bush administration's planned barrier along the U.S.-Mexico border is falling far behind schedule and running $400 million over budget. Meanwhile, the so-called virtual fence, a high-tech monitoring system built by Boeing, has been put on hold. The multi-million dollar virtual fence project has been plagued by technical problems for several months. The White House is pushing to finish 670 miles of physical barriers along the southern border before President Bush leaves office. So far, only half of the fence has been completed. Iowa's attorney general has filed a slew of criminal charges against the owners and top managers of Agriprocessor's kosher meatpacking plant in Postville. In May, the plant was the site of one of the largest immigration raids in U.S. history. The plant's leadership now faces more than 9,000 misdemeanor charges stemming from alleged child labor violations. An official affidavit says that miners were made to work with dangerous meatpacking machinery that only adults can legally operate. All of the previous charges related